everyone. Thanks for tuning in to This Place is History, a podcast about historic places. My name is Lara Doyle, and I will be the host of today's podcast. And joining me, I have my co-host, Robert Doyle. Hello. And so the purpose of today's podcast is to discuss the value of historic places, especially concerning historic homes and other historic structures, those who have been turned into museums and those who have been repurposed. We'll be looking at the concepts of who determines what spaces are worth saving, whose spaces are often being saved, and how we can diversify this demographic. We'll also be discussing the controversy of holding events at these spaces. Now, you may have noticed that we share a last name. That is because we are married. Uh, And as such, we do a lot of traveling together. And in our travels, being a couple of history buffs, we enjoy visiting historic spaces. And so in our journeys, we've seen various historic homes and we visit a lot of craft breweries that also happen to be uh, repurposed places. So I myself am a historian and Rob is a historic preservationist. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm currently in the UF Historic Preservation Master's Program, hopefully to finish sometime soon. Um, But yes, I am focused on craft breweries that have adaptively reused historic spaces uh, to house their breweries. Excellent. So to kind of get things started, we're going to talk about historic homes that have come to be uh, historic home museums, kind of discussing the concept of whose spaces are being used in this way and who gets to decide why those places are important. So the first that comes to mind is when we were visiting Boston Mm -hmm. and we saw Paul Revere's home. Right. So it is a historic mythology that he rode his midnight ride to gather the militia and that ever famous one if by land, two if by sea. And so his home has since been restored, whether from the ground up, whether from plot maps, or whether it was renovated and it's now a museum. Right. Did we did we go in there? We did not. We sure didn't. Contradicting that with what we know of, thanks to one of our favorite shows, Drunk History, the ride of Sybil Ludington, a 16-year-old teenage girl who did the same ride twice as far. She went 40 miles, yet her home isn't preserved. Her accomplishments aren't celebrated. Mm-hmm. And so this juxtaposition of whose home is being lauded as important, whose home has been restored, and the importance thereof. Right. Yeah, if it wasn't for the episode of Drunk History, honestly, I would not have known Sybil Ludington's name. So that's kind of criminal in its own right. Um, but yeah, I think it goes to show, like you said, the mythology that gets drilled into everybody is middle school, high school, whatever, about, you know, certain people or certain groups of people um, and other people, other genders, races are not represented um, or have not been represented historically. I think that is shifting now, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, And, you know, more, more histories need to be told, more histories need to be preserved so that we as Americans, I guess, get a total picture of what life was like for everybody in the past, where we can kind of have a more comprehensive learning experience of history. Right. And so we see that this is kind of like a rampant issue, Mm -hmm. especially in colonial histories, because we have the preserved 
plot of land where Benjamin Franklin's house was and where his print factory was. And then we have in Philadelphia, Betsy Ross's house and her notability only comes from the fact that she was a woman who did a quote unquote womanly task of sewing a flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of challenge, but both, both of those things, or I should say all three of those things are nationally funded because mm-hmm. it's perpetuating that national narrative that, um, the powers that be are intending to perpetuate. Right. And in, in the past, I mean, I, I was born in Philadelphia and grew up there and, you know, remember going to Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and things like that. And I think in the intervening decades, to date myself, um, <laughs> the intervening decades, there have been a lot of strides in Philadelphia. I mean, just at least in that kind of Independence Hall area the where, corridor yeah, when, when we went, um, they had actually uncovered, well, they had kind of opened up a preserved um, under glass, kind of like the slave quarters for, I don't know, if, I don't think it was George Washington, but another kind of... Are you talking about the, like, the house in, on, like, the, the mall of Philadelphia by... Right. Under, like, that was under right, glass. Right, yeah, that was yeah. Washington's, because that okay. was before the White House, and that's where he lived. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so you're starting to see other stories represented and not just the founding fathers you know right and as you said earlier i think things are definitely improving uh one of our other favorite uh spots and places we got to see is the flannery o'connor house in savannah Mm -hmm. so a um a very deeply traditional southern city but it's the home of a woman an author and a queer woman at that and so it's kind of telling of the the changing narrative and the changing perspectives and how it's becoming well at least we're trying to become more inclusive um and it's it's even more so uh noteworthy that the individual who is really at the forefront of um sharing her childhood home with a large audience and turning it into this house museum is herself a gay woman um we had the privilege of meeting her her name is cody shelley and she's a really delightful human being she's put a lot of work into um restoring the home into acquiring contemporary furnishings um chipping up really old trashy linoleum restoring the original floors and then sharing the story of flannery herself yeah it was uh it was really nice to meet cody um and see the kind of transformation of the house you know the house is probably built at the end of the 19th century or Could beginning be of the older, 20th century. Savannah was established in the yeah. 1600s. So. But, I mean, the progression of the house from what it was when Flannery O'Connor was a child and like and her family lived there. A single family home. To, right? you know, a series of apartments and or condos, whatever you want to call it. To then being refurbished and restored to the time period of uh, Flannery O'Connor's family inhabiting the house. Um, They've done a lot of really careful restoration to take it back to that time period. Like you said, getting kind of contemporary furniture. They completely restored the kitchen with... In the backyard. uh, The backyard, you know, they they restored the kitchen with with time-sensitive appliances that Mm -hmm. would have been appropriate. 
So yeah, that's that's an example of a really nice house museum that has undergone really careful restoration. And another kind of juxtaposition between those uh, colonial homes and Flannery's is that uh, the funding. So some of the funding for the Flannery O'Connor home comes from the fact that the upper level and the ground level are still apartments that are being rented out and mm-hmm. that revenue goes into the museum to help restore the level that the museum is on right. as to where the um, these other homes are on the National Register, they're historic monuments of their own right, and so they're getting all of this, this funding from the... Um, from the, the state and the cities that they are in. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how are some ways that we can improve the diversity of, of the demographic of these, these homes or these structures that are being restored? Well, from everything that I've learned and experienced in preservation through the graduate program that I'm in, a lot of the preservation boards or county historical societies are predominantly older, wealthy, white people. And those people have plenty of time on their hands because they're retired and they have a lot of money. So they have kind of the resources to bear when they want to fight for a, a home or a building to be preserved. You know, they're they're the loudest of voices. Um, and so I think kind of bringing more like a a more diverse group of people to historic preservation boards or county historical societies and things like that are going to kind of lend to um, a more diverse range of of places being considered for preservation or more resources will be brought to bear for preservation of, you know, non, you know, George Washington founding fathers type of uh, revolutionary spaces or you know, non-traditional um, cultural icons or artists, you know, like Flannery O'Connor. Right. It's like a 20th century female author, um, you know, and, and more places like that should be preserved to, like I said, tell a, kind of a broader story for our shared history. Well, and something you had mentioned in the previous and lost recording of this podcast, um, I believe the phrase was... That, uh, so in terms of preserving different places, like preserving more kind of vernacular, vernacular structures, architecture, yes. right? So one of my, one of my former professors, Chris French, who uh, is a preservationist and has worked in a lot of different places, like tried to preserve the cyclorama at Gettysburg. Um, she was a main historian and I think she was a like docent at, um, James Gamble Rogers house down in Orlando in Winter Park. Um, Chris has always been, you know, a proponent for equal representation in preservation. And, you know, she kind of was somebody who I learned a lot from in terms of what types of politics happen with these historic preservation boards and committees and how skewed they can be. And she fought a lot of battles against developers in, in the Orlando area about um, preserving, you know, simple structures that, you know, to the naked eye or the untrained eye might not be valuable or might not seem historic. Yeah. 
but they are in their own right for what they represent or for the story right. that they tell. And so, you know, they may not have a grandiose history like George Washington at Mount Vernon, but they're as important to, to tell to a story. To the fabric of right. the community. Right. Similar to, um, so a great example of that would be like Cabbage Town in Atlanta. Right. Um, one of our friends just purchased a home there, and it's a... Um, it's like an Appalachian neighborhood that was uh, cultivated out of folks that they brought down from the mountains to work in the factories and their stories and mm-hmm. their histories and um, their cultures that you can see in the yards and in the and in the fabrics of the homes themselves. Well, and just in terms of how the houses were built and how the neighborhood was put together, right? Everything is a lot more dense, tighter than yeah. than kind of what you would have had in the later twentieth century. Yeah, yeah. Um, so continuing this conversation outside of historic homes, but also the properties of historic places that might have been since repurposed. Um, so the concept of taking old schools, old fireplaces, or excuse me, old firehouses and um, police stations and that kind of things and, and renovating them so that they still have relevance to the community today. Yeah, so that's primarily what I study is uh, adaptive reuse of old structures, historic structures, for new purposes for the 21st century. And obviously I focus on uh, craft breweries. And so, you know, across the country, there are craft breweries that have opened up in dozens of firehouses, churches, schools, um, old jails, old banks, Know, you name it and here in Gainesville we've got one brewery in a in a historic location called Cypress and Grove and they're located in the former Gainesville ice plant so the building itself is over 100 years old and originally served as a you know commercial and residential plant where people could get blocks of ice it was also used for cold meat storage um, so it served the community for probably 60 or 70 years before it changed purposes and changed hands a couple of times and then fell into disrepair in the early 2000s. Um, and Cypress and Grove recently celebrated their two-year anniversary as a functional open brewery, but they've been there for roughly four years. It took them a while to kind of renovate the space and get the brewing equipment up and going and, and actually start making beer. Uh, but it's a really interesting space and they've the owners have done a lot to preserve as much of the fabric of the building and the materials as they could. Um, they're very, very focused on kind of sustainability and being a part of the community and um, creating a space that acknowledges the history of the building um, and incorporates some of the old wood that they removed from the roof. They've built tables in the brewery. They've built um, part of the bar, you know, the wood frames around the doors to the bathroom and um, like other features within the brewery. Um, they've they've used the wood that they've repurposed from the roof and they tried to maintain as much historic fabric of that building as possible. Yeah, they even went so far as to, uh, on the, ex- uh, the external side of the building, they were going to uh, chip away some of the old paint and see what was underneath and they ended up finding a 
basically the old signage for the meat storage. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, rather than kind of put wood slats over it, which is, I think, what they intended to do, they left it as is to kind of provide that visual history to visitors and to the Gainesville community to show, yeah. you know, um, that, that visual representation of, of what used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the one of the other sites, uh, Creature Comforts. So Creature Comforts is a craft brewery in Atlanta, Georgia, that was formerly a auto showroom and also a tire depot or tire sales. <laughs> I don't I don't know what to call it. Uh, a place where, a place where people <laughs> would buy tires, right? Um, and it was called Snow Tires. So and it was snow, a, a Goodyear derivative. Yes, yeah, yeah. Snow is the name of the people who owned it, not that they were selling snow tires in Georgia. But uh, Creature Comforts is, it's kind of similar to um, Cypress and Grove in that, you know, the building's not as old, but they're both, you know, commercial spaces that had wide open floor plans, very kind of sturdy bones, you know, cinder block, brick, tile, um, both had, you know, really high ceilings. Um, Creature Comforts is a lot taller than Cypress and Grove, but um, the Creature Comforts is located in um, Athens, which is in Clark County, Georgia. And Clark County has a very stringent kind of historic preservation code. So if you were going to renovate a historic building, you have to really adhere to the letter of the law in order to, um, you know, be eligible for funding. Funding, and, right? Yeah. So... Um, when we went there and went on a tour, um, the woman that gave us the tour told us about how they were painting a mirror on the outside of the building with their logo, which you would think would be okay to kind of sure. just at least acknowledge the name of your business. Right, yeah. And they were quickly told, no, that goes against the historic preservation Coding laws in, whatever, yeah. in Clark County. And so this like really nice mural with their logo that they had painted had to be removed. They had to paint over it with a very specific kind of paint too. Um, So the, the rules there probably are a little bit more strict than we have. Um, But in, in both instances in creature comforts and in Cypress and Grove, the owners, the people that started the breweries um, were really, really trying to, find a place that was a vital part or like could be a vital part of the community, right. like in the heart of town that would connect the people with the place. Right. And both, both places really strove to incorporate as much as the, as much of the former architecture as possible. And these big commercial spaces or industrial spaces are really, um, they really work well for breweries. Right. You know, sturdy buildings, maybe the insulation's not that great, but, you know, you have brick or or terracotta or terracotta or, or concrete block or whatever. And, um, you know, big open spaces that lend themselves well to the big brewing equipment that you need. So, yeah. Yeah. Creature Comforts in Athens is another really unique space, um, another example of adaptive reuse. And. They actually, for their second location, with they're turning into their main production facility, um, they bought and have been restoring for 
almost it's in two production years. now. Yeah. They just decided not to make it a tap room, and it's fully operational at this point. So it's um it's an old mill, kind of on the outside of Athens, close to the river and where the old railroad was. So their Creature Comforts is is a company that's really committed to kind of preserving some historic fabric in Athens. Yeah, I think that's what's what's really telling about these and kind of the common thread and theme throughout is that whether it's a historic home that's there to tell the story of a historic figure or if it's a historic location being reused to um, a tell the history of the place as well as the history of the community while still providing a place of gathering and uh, and and fellowship of sorts if you will uh, for the community Mm-hmm. Um, so all of it is very community minded. It's very narrative focused, um, and we're all trying to tell a story right. at some point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to kind of round things out, one of the things that we had talked about on our own time earlier in the semester was the controversy of uh, events being hosted at these kinds of spaces, whether they're um, uh, weddings and you know, family reunions and what have you. Um, and, and I brought it up in the context of plantations, especially that of McLeod Plantation. It's a plantation that's doing a really good job at flipping the narrative and the script, if you will. And rather than focusing on the story of the big house and the story of the plantation owners, it's more focused on the stories of the enslaved people and telling a more complete history, um, counter a, a counter narrative to what is cr- most often being told. Mm-hmm. Um, but they too fell under fire for having... Um, and hosting weddings and and family reunions and that kind of thing. Um, So much so that one of their uh, directors completely um, withdrew herself. Uh, She, not retired, what's the word? Resigned. Resigned. She fully resigned from her position um, because she didn't agree with the practices taking place Mm. um, at her own establishment. So the compromise um, thereafter was to kind of only permit uh, people of color to host events of that nature there. Um, but then there's that kind of larger conversation of like selling out, right? Mm-hmm. So the only way you can make money is to quote unquote sell out. And um, you had some really good things to say. To- yeah, I, I guess as an overall principle, I disagree with that being referred to as selling out or, or seeing, seeing a historic site or house museum having events to fundraise as as classifying that as as selling out because the fact of the matter is there are thousands of little house museums and historical societies out there that get zero federal funding or very little state or local funding they always have to fight tooth and nail for every penny well and for their relevance even right yeah, you have to. You also have to fight for a footing amongst you know kind of a sea of other historical sites or, you know, more modern things to do, right? right? So the the tale of the kind of small local house museum is fraught with roadblocks of kind of all all natures, but in in terms of fundraising, it to me it doesn't qualify as selling out if. You know, a small house museum does different events throughout the year, like a, you know, Christmas party or holiday party or something like that. Or they do, you know, in the Flannery O'Connor house, if there's a cocktail evening that features cocktails that were, you know, in her novels 
um, to try and draw visitors in or fundraise, you know, just, just, you know, the mortgage or lease or the electricity bills and things like that are going to be a restoration because it is a historic space and things fall apart. Right. Those things cost hundreds of thousands of dollars every month. Right. And small small house museums have to find creative ways of staying afloat right. it's the you know the old phrase like innovate or die because if they don't do everything that they can to bring in money they will cease to exist and then and then we won't even be having a conversation is it selling out they won't exist right. they will they will fall to the highest bidder and then there is no conversation over what that space is going to be it's going to be torn down for a new condo or a gas, gas station, station or a cvs or a walgreens right so i think it's i think it's just unfair to say that any non-historic event at these places or or non you know entry fee dollar right. is quote-unquote selling out it's staying afloat Sure. Really, but there is the larger conversation of what's appropriate to host. Yeah, especially at places like former plantations. I absolutely, a hundred percent agree that yeah, you don't you don't want to have kind of insensitive events. You know, right? You wouldn't want to have like a fraternity woodser at a <laughs> yeah. at a at a plantation like that would be completely inappropriate. Um, so I think I think that is a conversation that's fair to have is if you are having events, what's appropriate for the venue or the museum? Right. Like, absolutely. But or at the very least, if you are going to host a family reunion, do like the McLeod House and restrict it to people of color or sure. Or if you're like, make sure half of that revenue goes to the ACLU or SPLC. Sure. Yeah. There there are and there are there are places there are museums that that do that mm -hmm. where a portion of the proceeds that they generate from certain events will go to local charities right. or like relevant organizations within the local community. So yeah. I think I mean I think that's that's a great kind of um compromise. And then the greater question too is like if if it is one of those plantations that are only telling that white patriarchal narrative who cares if they go out of business? Like they can suck an egg. Well, yeah, I mean there there is I think there is some truth to that, but I think if I think the greater fight should be telling a complete and inclusive story and not saying, well, piss on that place, let's just let it fall apart because then then you lose any history that's available to you at all. Yeah. And if there is a greater story or a more complete story to be told there, then we should at least try and try and fight for it. Now, should that place say, well, we're only going to continue telling the story? No, I, I don't think that's appropriate. But I don't think that um, a place should be necessarily made to fall into disrepair or, you know, get bulldozed because the fundraising they're doing isn't necessarily sensitive to every story. Yeah. So certainly is a debate for the ages and restoration and yeah and house museums and that kind of thing yeah all right well thank you so much for joining us mr doyle on this Absolutely. edition of this place's history 
and uh, until next time.